welcome to episode 73 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So tonight starts our brand new tradition of 2018, and I'm super stoked for this. Yeah, it should be really good. So what are we doing tonight? We are doing our second ever, but our first formal question and answer night. So we finally accumulated enough voicemails and emails to have a whole night devoted to listener questions. And we figured out on a technical level how to do this stuff. We got voicemails and you're going to hear other voices besides us, which probably you've been waiting for for a long, long time. Yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> so here's how this is going to work. We got some voicemails. We'll play those voicemails and then we'll have some discussion. How do you feel about that? Let's do it. That's good because they're really, we didn't have a choice. Yeah. This is all that we've got. It's all we've got prepared. We don't prepare normally. This is probably more prepared for a podcast <laughs> than we may ever have been actually. Cut to everybody listening with their shocked faces that this is actually our most prepared yeah. and yet it sounds this messy. That's funny. All right, let's do it, All right, so how about Jesse. we hit up a voicemail? We do. All right, here we go. Hey, so regarding your uh, recent episode on superlapsarianism, Superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. I had a kind of a question. The how how do you reconcile glorifying like God's chief end to be to glorify bring glory to Himself? Um, how how does that relate to Him logically decreeing the fall first? All right, so. I'm not sure. So this is like the anonymous caller. It's a really good question. And unfortunately it got cut off, but it's actually a really stellar question. So this is a good way to kick it off. So how do we reconcile God's glory with the fact that God has logically decreed the fall? Yeah, that's a great question. And I have to admit that I don't really see a conflict between those two things. So I'm not sure that we need to reconcile them. So um, I think this All right, is next in, voicemail. What was that? Next voicemail. Next voicemail, yeah. So I think this is in response to when we did our episode on the order of God's decrees. We talked right. about how the superlapsarian view is oriented around God's glory being the final end. And so they start with the end result and they work backwards, right? So the infralapsarian view um, doesn't necessarily start with the end result, but that's where they end up anyways. So the disagreement isn't so much about what the final result or the final, um, the end of creation is. Both positions would say that the end of creation or the chief aim or end of creation is God's ultimate glory. The disagreement is in how it is that God accomplishes that. I think that the superlapsarian view would kind of say um, something along the lines of like, well, God is responding to the fall in the infralapsarian view. And so somehow it's, it, it, there's less glory attributed to God or his primary end is not his own glory. And I, right. I just have never really understood where that objection finds footing. Um, so for me, God's glorious in the infralapsarian view primarily because that's what I think the Bible reveals to us. So, um, but it, in terms of, I, I don't think that it detracts from his glory to say that he decided um, to allow the fall 
prior to deciding to reprobate people. And that's really the, the main crux of the infra superlapsarian debate is where does the decree of election slash reprobation, but in my view, really reprobation, where does that fall in relation to the um, decree to allow the fall? Um, and I don't know that either position is, you know, preserves God's glory better than the other. For me, it really comes down to what does the biblical testimony tell us? How does God's nature and what we understand God's nature to be, how does that play into what we think God is doing in the order that God would do things in and did do things in? Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, well, maybe we could ask it kind of this way to retool it a bit. So why does the infralapsarian view bring God glory? So if that is what the scripture holds, which I think is what we both believe, yeah. then why does that reveal something glorious about God? Yeah, so um, maybe to kind of back into it, uh, and this will get into a question where it looks like we've got coming up um, just from some of the summaries that we've done. Um, God's glory in the superlapsarian view comes from his um, ultimate sovereignty in terms of not only um, being the savior of the world, but also in being the one who condemns the world. There's a certain level of glory in God's unilateral choice apart from any other conditions. In the infralapsarian view, what I what I believe is the case is we see God as glorious in the infralapsarian view because he is the savior of sinners. Right. God saves sinners. That's the infralapsarian view. He chooses right. those who were his enemy. And so all across scripture, especially in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament too, God's electing a people who do not deserve to be saved or God's electing a people who are not worthy of his love. Um, that is one of the chief I don't know if you want to call it an attribute, but one of the chief ways that God reveals his nature and his gloriousness is that he is such a gracious and glorious God, abundant in loving kindness, that he chooses even those who are unworthy, right? He didn't choose Israel because they were the most numerous. And in fact, they were the least numerous of all people, but he chose them and he fixed his love on them simply because he is good. And that's what he, what he did according to the counsel of his will. So I think, you know, other than the sort of cop-out answer that like, well, this is what scripture reveals. Scripture really does paint a picture of God's God's glory being found in that he saves sinners and he chooses sinners. And the right superlapsarian view doesn't have God choosing sinners to save. It has him choosing non-sinners, people who are not considered in light of sin, both to save and to reprobate. So he's not looking at a group of sinful people and saying, I'm going to save some of them. He's looking at a group of neutral people and saying, some of these people I'm going to make my people and some of these people I'm going to condemn to hell. And then, and then he formulates a way to justify doing those two things. I need to save them. So I'm going to allow them to fall. So I have something to save them from. And I need to have a just reason to condemn them. Um, And so he then, after he decides to do those two things, he logically then ordains the means by which those things are justified. Exactly. That I think is glorious, right? Right. I mean, just the way you described that is really good. And for me, that's what's so wonderfully encapsulated in the infralapsarian view, which has that really strong fidelity with the way the scriptures help us to understand the logical order of that stuff. And I think when we talked about that in a previous episode, that we talked about the difference between trying to understand this temporally in terms of sequencing these events, because they're all happening in the divine mind all at once, but the chronological order 
or the logical order rather, is super important because it says something about God. It reveals something about his character. And for me, what you just said was basically this idea that in the infralapsarian view, that scheme naturally commends itself to justice and mercy. And no matter who you are, there's no doubt that in this life, there's been a time where you've wanted justice. Either you've read something that has really offended you about somebody being taken advantage of, or you yourself have been taken advantage of, and you want a God who expends justice for things that have gone wrong. Right. And at the same time, you want mercy for when you've fallen short. And so that is what we find in the infralapsarian view. There is, I love what you said, because it reminds me that it's not as if God was just empathetic to our condition, that we were so miserable in our sin, that we had literally died. It's not just like he was compassionate and said, well, that I feel for you. Like, that's really tough. But he makes a way, like on his own volition, he makes a way to save us from that pool of wretched sinners. In this logical decree, he says, I will make a way to save those people. And is that not just basically the story of heroism? Right. And like every tale, every movie, every book since that time, since the dawn of time itself, has basically been some recapitulation of that theme because that theme is glorious. There's something in us which gravitates towards saying how awesome it is to be rescued when there was no hope, when everything was in peril. Right. So I think that is the great reason why even though he permits the fall, this logical order of decree tells us something about how great God is, that he wouldn't just create the universe, which is awesome in itself, but that he would be the one to self-identify as the savior of that very thing that we had just utterly ruined. Right. So to me, that's glorious. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so as kind of like a follow-up to that question, somebody had sent us an email as well. And this is kind of on the heels of us talking about the difference between superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. And we had said something about the fact that God sometimes, or, or Arminians sometimes kind of paint this picture that Calvinists, Reformed people, all they believe is that God is basically creating people and automatically damning them some to hell and saving some into eternity. So how does like infolapsarianism save us from that? Because yeah. ultimately aren't there still men that are created to suffer God's wrath? So that that's the question. I'll, yeah. I'll let you start with that one first, Tony. That's, that's a thorny one. So I'm going to, I'm going to slide into this in sort of an, an abstract, strange way. So I've been listening to this new podcast that in a roundabout way you actually recommended to me. And the podcast is called uh, the remonstrance podcast. So oh, yeah. um, I'm not becoming an Arminian. I don't need you to write letters to my pastor full of concern or anything like that. But um, this podcast is actually really good. And the reason it's really good, just short uh, digression from our topics, is most Arminians that you encounter are kind of like modern Arminians that don't really, they're kind of like these squishy evangelicals that don't really have a lot of care about the history of their tradition. Right. That's the, the typical Arminian that I've encountered. It's a lot of like, why can't we just love Jesus people? And um, these guys are kind of like if you took a reformed person in terms of like our understanding of history and the way we approach theology and history, but instead had them looking at the Arminian tradition. Uh, it's a very interesting podcast. So you should check it out. It's called The Remonstrance. And I was listening to them today and they were actually talking about Arminius's 
doctrine of predestination in relation to infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism. And they made a really important point that I actually hadn't thought about before, is that in both the supra and the infralapsarian view, God is, is considering people as uncreated. So no matter what he does, whether it's the super view or the infra view, he is deciding the fate of people before he even logically decides to create them in the first place. Now, Arminius made a big deal about how that was bad, and I, I don't think that that critique lands. But it's it's a key difference in terms of what is happening in the superlapsarian view versus the infralapsarian view. So in the superlapsarian view, he is saying, this person who I have not decided to create, I will create as a fallen person. When I create person A who is going to be reprobate, in my mind, I've already decided before I've decided to create them that they are fallen, that they are sinners, they are reprobate, they are beyond salvation, they they merit nothing but wrath, and they only ever, ever possibly could merit wrath. Because before I even consider them as created, when they're still just hypotheticals, they're hypotheticals who are already fallen. The infralapsarian view flips that over. And what it says is um, all of these things that are happening are still God considering people as uncreated, but rather than consider them as um, as not sinners when they're created, right? So, so superlapsarianism is he decrees to um, elect some and uh, reprobate some, and then he decrees the fall to justify that, and then he decrees, decrees to create. Uh, actually, creation may come first. I'll have to look that up sometime. But in infralapsarianism, God chooses to allow the fall before the decree of election and before the decree of creation. And so when he um, when he does that, when he decides to reprobate people, these uncreated hypotheticals, he is reprobating people who have already been considered as sinners. So the Arminian critique that I was getting at when I said that, and I, I will admit it was a strong statement, and I, I would say it again, I, I don't take any of it back, is the Arminian critique is that God is arbitrarily condemning people. He's arbitrarily right. condemning people who have, have no reason to be condemned. They haven't done anything. They, they couldn't do otherwise. And in fact, God takes pleasure and joy in creating damned creatures, in, in deciding to create damned creatures. The infralapsarian view is holding a slightly different position in that when God chooses to reprobate people, he's not reprobating neutral people. He's reprobating people who he has allowed to fall. In his mind, he's already decided that this person, all persons, will be allowed to sin and rebel against him. And so in reprobation, it's a passive reprobation in that he's simply allowing them to to progress on the path that he um, has chosen to allow them to put themselves on. Right. So the decree of election and reprobation on um, infralapsarian is not equal. The decree of election is God's decision to act on behalf of people he's chosen to save. And the degree of reprobation is God's decision not to act on behalf of people he has chosen not to save. 
But on right. the super lapsarian view, and this is like super technical, so go back and listen to the episode if you're really confused. But on the super lapsarian view, the decree to reprobate is a decree to actively condemn people who are neutral and to actively um, bless and save people who are neutral. And so the Arminian critique that God is a monster because he arbitrarily and capriciously acts both to damn and to save in equal ways is actually a dec- is actually a critique that I think lands squarely on the superlapsarian view. But on the infralapsarian view, there's that um, asymmetry between the decrees of reprobation and decree of election that I think makes that critique not quite apt for um, the infralapsarian view. So I think the infralapsarian view protects us from falling into the error of equal ultimacy, which is exactly what the Armenians accuse us of. Right. In other, in other words, that passivity that you just spoke about demonstrates something about the primacy and priority of God's mercy. Right. So I think it's important to remember that the decrees concerning the saved and the lost should not be looked upon as based on some merely abstract sovereignty on God's part. God is truly sovereign, but that sovereignty is not exercised in an right. arbitrary way. And that was what I think a classical Armenian critique would have you believe. And so this is why, again, though we speak of everything in this kind of really aggregated temporal order because it's hard for our minds to comprehend right. the logical piece in terms of how this all parses out is super important because if we just jettison that whole thing and say it's not worth thinking about then what happens is we end up in this weird space where we're saying no what happened is god created me and i was just kind of a blank ca- campus of neutral ability understanding and morality and then god decided yay or nay and that yay or nay has to be completely arbitrary because there was no essential precondition or there was no condition of the soul in which he stepped in to make a decision, right. whatever we mean by that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's people. This it's a really good question because I think that's I, I like this question because it's thinking forthrightly about the outworkings of this kind of high level theology, right? Yeah, and I think that the way that this is phrased in the email is important. So this is a direct quote, at least as much as the summary that you wrote for me is a direct quote. I'm assuming no, it's actually right from direct the email. from the email. It says, you also made the argument that superlapsarian paints God to be the monster that Arminians frequently straw man us believing in or as believing in. And what I'm saying is that I don't think that it's actually a straw man for the superlapsarian. It's a straw man on the infralapsarian view, but I don't think it actually is on the superlapsarian view. And that's really important. And it's also important to recognize that Arminius himself was responding to Theodore Beza, who was, I don't want to say he was the first superlapsarian, but he was the one that kind of drew these conclusions out and then embraced them. So there may have been people before who had this double double predestination, almost equal ultimacy schema. Thomas Aquinas is one that comes to mind. Augustine in some right. senses. Even Calvin has passages that look like there's this double ultimacy going on. But Beza not only had it going on in his writing, but he recognized it and embraced it. So he explicitly says that God condemns people who are not being considered as sinners, and then he ordains their sin in order to justify their condemnation. So Arminius's answer was, well, God doesn't decree any of that, right? God is looking forward in time and seeing what the creature would do, and then he's responding to that. He's, he's assessing them based on what they would do, which I, that's just insanity to me. It doesn't right. even make logical sense. But the, the response by the Reformed Orthodox 
right? The the and there's going to be a bunch of super lapsarians that are like freaking out about this. But all of the reform <laughs> confessions, they're written in a way that a super lapsarian could sign on without too much too much heartburn over it. But they're written as primarily infralapsarian documents. Oh, for sure. The primary Absolutely. writers were almost all infralapsarians. The language, right. you have to really think hard to figure out how to say it as a superlapsarian and be okay with it. The language is all sorts of infralapsarian. So the Orthodox Reformed response was not to say, well, God doesn't decree these things. It was to adjust the way that the decrees are being considered. That's more more in line with, um, with the way that the Bible presents it. And Arminius had a really interesting insight that nothing that God decrees in eternity past does not flow into time in basically the same order. And that's different than the way the infralapsarians came about, but I think it's a really insightful um, an insightful insight that seems kind of redundant. But God's when we look at the order of God's decrees, there's an internal logic that follows the chronological outflow in time. And, right. and I think that that's important. And to me, it's just much more intuitive. And the biblical data that we have is primarily talking about the temporal workouts or outflows of the decrees. There's not a lot of hard data on the actual um, the actual eternal pre-temporal decrees. And so we have to extrapolate. And I just think the infralapsarian view makes better sense of the scripture. Uh, it, I agree. And it's certainly, I think, closer. It comports with not only the specific points you're making, but when we look at the full council of the scriptures, the whole council, it comports better with God's character, what we can discern from all areas of scripture. Yep. So it's it's interesting to me that even in the form of the question, and this happens to all of us, that there's kind of this Arminian language kind of baked in because we've yep. been taught to think, even as Reformed people, that aren't men still created to suffer God's wrath? And that's, I think we might quibble with our understanding of what we, when we say that, that we're not quite understanding that logical order. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, so. and just to sort of put a pin in this conversation and, and wrap it up is um, Arminius, is con- his objection was that both the infra and superlapsarian view do ultimately say that when men are created, there are some who are created as vessels of wrath. And he has a big problem with that. And, I look at that and I say, well, that's like word for word what Paul says. So I don't have right. a problem with that. <laughs> but the difference is that um, on the infralapsarian view, and I would say the biblical view, the men who are created as vessels of wrath have made themselves vessels of wrath because they chose to fall and God passively, his making them vessels of wrath is him choosing not to to restore them and correct them. Exactly. It's a permission. Right. On the superlapsarian view, there never was a point where God ever considered them um, as anything but sinners. In the infralapsarian view, that's not really the case in the same way. So I think it's a great question. Uh, Like I said, it's a strong statement that I made, but I stand behind it. Um, And I think that the people who want to hold the superlapsarian view really need to think through those implications because right. I know we, we talked about it. I was a, sort of a default superlapsarian. You kind of said the same thing. We I think we came out of that in different ways, but I've heard from lots of people who were also kind of that default superlapsarian that after listening to the episode said, a couple people have said, well, now I'm, a, now I'm an infralapsarian. And a, a lot of people said, I really need to think through this a little more carefully. So I would just encourage people, if you're, if you're like chafing against me saying that, 
then think about it and prove me wrong. Like show me where that statement is incorrect and I'm happy to adjust my statement. I just haven't had it happen yet. Right. In the words of Paul, you're sensible people. Examine the scriptures. Exactly. And take a look at the biblical data. So that is a great question, though. I, yep. I appreciate that question very much. All right. Next voicemail. Hey, guys. My name is Dan McClellan. I live in Minnesota. Somebody recently recommended your podcast to me. It was actually because of the Intinction episode. Um, but I just listened to the first episode of 2018, and you were on that episode. One of you guys said basically that certain areas of theology, certain doctrines can be kind of pulled out and replaced with something else to some degree, but covenant theology cannot be that that it's the architecture of uh, the way we think about and deal with God, which I think is true, but I thought that that might be something really good for you guys to kind of talk about and flesh that out a little bit more and what you meant by that. Thanks a lot, guys. God bless. Yeah, Dan. All right. We appreciate you listening to the podcast and starting us off with us in 2018. And we did... In that episode, Tony, remember we spoke about some of like the top theological issues that we were going to examine in 2018, yep. the ones important to us and we felt might be important to the Reformed community writ large. And so I think I actually spoke about the fact that covenant theology is more than imperative, right? Yep. And we actually made the case that it was irreplaceable, that you cannot take this out and expect to have any kind of superstructure that closely resembles I think we were like very, like we make bold statements now, I guess, in this podcast. Like yeah. Not just anything that resembles Reformed theology, but almost anything that resembles Christianity altogether. Yeah. So um, I'm glad you asked this because we'll probably talk about this at length later, but let's get into the short of why we said that. So why did you say that? Yeah. So covenant theology, um, more or less, is the Bible's way of articulating the nature of God and because of who God is, how he interacts with his people. So we're talking about something that is absolutely fundamental to understanding who and what God is. If right. you, I mean, if you want to go all the way into it, even the, the eternal relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, um, relationships might not be the best word, but the eternal interactions and the internal, eternal, internal relations of the Trinity are described to us in scripture in covenantal language, right? We understand that's accommodated language. It's, it's ways for us to understand things that are incomprehensible to us. But when the Bible wants to teach us about how the father and the son relate to each other, it uses covenantal language. And so if you take the covenant theology out of the scripture, you take that out of your systematic theology, then you not only have to change how you understand salvation to work, but you have to change how you understand God to work. You have to change how you understand this, what the scripture is, right? On a covenant theology framework, the scripture is the covenantal um, documents, right? You right. go to the bank, you take out a mortgage, they're going to keep a copy of your mortgage, you're going to get a copy of your mortgage, and those are the covenant documents. Well, the Bible is the covenant document. It's what constitutes the church. It's what makes the church a body rather than just a, a loose association of people. So every single point of systematic theology, every lo lochi of systematic theology is deeply influenced by systematic or by covenant theology, such that if you take covenant theology away, you really have to go through each point and redo all of it from the ground up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I said, even something as foundational about 
the doctrine of the Trinity or theology proper. If you yeah, draw exactly. covenant theology out of that, you got to start over. Even prolegomena, before we even start doing theology, we have to talk about the structure of thought and how people interact with God and how God reveals himself to us. Well, that's covenant theology that you have to work with. So right. it's not like just a discrete point. You know, every point of systematic theology interacts with every other point of systematic theology. But it's not the case that you have to redo everything if you pull and change baptism out or if you if you hold a Anselmian satisfaction the, you know, theory versus a hard penal substitution theory. You know, those things are different and it there's implications for the rest of your system. But you don't have to redo everything. The Trinity right. doesn't change in a drastic way if penal substitution is true versus um, like Iranian or Iranian um, recapitulation theory or some other obscure atonement theory. There's slight variations. You might have to make some adjustments, but you don't have to start over the way you do with covenant theology. Right. Basically, if you consider Christian doctrine to be a, a giant game of Jenga, the easy pieces to pull out that aren't going to cause it to topple over would be things like baptism or right. different theories of the atonement. Those are good examples. But we're basically saying if you pull out covenant theology, it's like the whole bottom layer. It's just going to yep. fall over. And yeah. you're going to have to pick up all the pieces and try to put them back together in a way that makes a lot less sense to get you back to what the scriptures are saying. Yeah. So for me, the reason why I think this is irreplaceable is because we, we just forget by our kind of our default setup that we weren't just created and then given a covenant. We were created as covenant creatures. Right. And we're not like partners in deity, but we are in the drama that unfolds in history. And so I, I'm totally, you basically stole everything I said, except you used the word lochi, which I appreciated. <laughs> um, there's this idea that somehow the covenant only speaks to God's external administration of the things that he takes and does in form of action. Whereas what you just said, and I agree with, is that this is saying something about God's character, that we're looking not just at what he administers, but who he is by way of that administration. And when we jettison that whole thing, I, you have to ask, what do we understand of God? Or we're taking a large chunk of what the scriptures infer to us about God, and it just totally goes away. Yeah. And, you know, I think that this is where this very point, this starting point, is where something like Arminianism tends to go off the mark a bit. And that's because if you do not understand that we are created in covenant to begin with, and that that covenant, just like the suzerain vassal treaties of like the ancient East, where these are not bilateral agreements. Right. So like we'd often think, some, and this is fine, but sometimes somebody will say like a covenant is a contract. And that's true to an extent, but we don't have these same exactly types of contracts where like, you have this kind of vassal state that is in this contract, not necessarily by choice often, and there's still a dominant party. Right. It's not just like they get to negotiate and both parties get to come to terms and they shake hands at the end of this. There's a place where there's a rightful authority over the entire relationship, even though there's established penalties and blessings. Yeah. And so when we fail to understand that, then this is what happens is we get into a place where we think, well, the covenant is something that God has given to us in ministry. It's a piece of action, which he's put out there. And we can either confirm or deny that. We can participate or we cannot participate. And what we're saying is, no, 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 like the superstructure, everything is covenant. And God himself is the administrator of that covenant. He is the authority over that covenant. He sets it up. Yeah. And he has the right to enforce it, whether or not we think we're in it or we want to comport with it. 
So it it's that important. Now I'm just getting fired up. It's that yeah. important. Yeah. Another helpful way to maybe think about this is the concept of language, right? So um, language fundamentally is a collection of sounds that humans are capable of making that we arrange in particular orders, right? That's language. And different orders of sounds mean different things in different languages. But if you somehow like remove one of those sounds or you fundamentally alter um, a large set of those sounds. So there's a whole set of sounds that are made by pressing your tongue against your teeth and then voicing or aspirating or, or different things you do with your mouth, right? If you remove someone's teeth, then all of a sudden language is a different thing for them. And the reason for that is because um, those sounds are so fundamental to what language is that if you change those set of sounds, then you've changed how the entire principle of language works. So right. take then the alphabet. The alphabet might be something like a systematic theology where I can take an A, right? And I can take that out and I might be able to replace it with like an olive from Hebrew, right? It's a slightly different sound. It's it's a different script. It looks a little bit different. It serves a slightly different role in the, in the language itself. But that olive is roughly equivalent and so I could have all of B, C, D, E, F, G instead of A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And my language would probably function basically the same because the sounds that those letters represent are still the same. That's kind of what we're talking about here, right? The, the specific um, ways that covenant theology and different reformed ways of thinking sort of flows into systematic theology, baptism might be the letter D, right? And I could have D or I could have delta in Greek. And, and so, you know, different ways of thinking about baptism, those are different letters. They represent slightly different sounds. They represent different um, linguistic environments, but they're roughly interchangeable in their usage. But if you take away that dental sound of the D, then you can't do any of that stuff. You have to reinvent the whole principle of language. So that might be like a really strange, super nerdy linguistic example, but I feel like <laughs> if any great. podcast is going to be okay with a strange nerdy linguistic example, it's probably ours. This is our jam. Almost like if you took out the D and for some reason we're like, well, I'll just place that with an L. Now going to get your teeth worked on turns into a type of stew instead. It's that big <laughs> difference. You know, you must have been thinking that the whole time that I was. It actually, it just it just came to me wow. right then. But so let me couch it in this way: like in terms of the the covenant being this context, always in Scripture, where we find God is doing His work. He could have done His work in many other ways, but this is the way that He chose to do it. And this theme is what unifies the Scriptures, though there's all this kind of remarkable variety and all this historicity as He moves through His working through His people yeah. through all these different epochs. And at the same time, we see those covenants come back in Scripture consistently and then also exhibit something about his character. So, for instance, just like a simple thing. So in like the Noahic covenant, we've got rainbow. Like any kid in Sunday school is going to recognize what that means right. from a young age, having learned that. And then when we get all the way to like the last book of the Bible in Revelation, and we're getting this wonderful description of God's throne, it's surrounded in rainbow. Yeah. So there's like this wonderful consistency of here is, and that's like the mercy seat. Here is God merciful and his covenant is who he is and his covenant is what he does. Yeah. And if you take away who he is and what he does, we're basically left with, with almost nothing. So, yeah. um, 
one more thing, because I just thought of this this week, and this is kind of strange for me. So I'm just gonna be personal for a second. So this week in the mail, I got a large bill that I was not expecting. It's one of those bills like you open up and you're like, oh my word, how yeah. do we owe this much money? Uh, you're Like you're not expecting it and your immediate thought is, so how are we gonna pay this thing? And it was one of those instances where it basically took away my breath for a second. Yeah. And I, I put it down and then I came back to it a little bit later like hoping it would be smaller. You know, like you're seeing the numbers yeah. on the page and it's not registering that we owe this kind of money all of a sudden. And for whatever reason, almost immediately on the second pass over that bill, I was reminded of the law, like the first covenant with Moses. And I was reminded of this in the sense that I think sometimes we think that because we're on this side of the cross, that somehow the law just passes over us. Yeah. Like, but the reality is the bill well, that the law demands comes in everybody's mailbox and my name and yours is on the invoice. Yeah. And if we look at it, it should take our breath away because we should say, I cannot pay this. There's yeah. no way. And so the fact that in the covenant of the Old Testament and the covenant of the New Testament, we see something about God and what he demands and requires. And then the New Testament, we see Jesus in this covenant step in to handle my bill that came to me in my mailbox that took my breath away, that that pushed me on the ground because I just could not find any resource to pay it. As if that wasn't enough just to be made whole, to be made even so that I didn't have the debt. It's like I get a letter in the mail that says I'm being commended for obeying the law. Yeah. And all of this we get in the covenant. So I just think it's like a marvelous, marvelous thing. And, and we shouldn't jettison it. And it just destroys the beauty of the gospel yeah. and the beauty of, of God's outworking through his people and through history. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's all I got to say about that. All right. Well, let's ready for another voicemail. Let's do it. Hey, my name is uh, Frederick Carver. I really love the podcast. Uh, my uncle shared it to me a while back, and uh, it's been great. I'm actually a college student in Mobile, and uh, I know there's a connection there. But anyway, uh, I heard on your podcast a while back um, you wanted to find a techno-Christian band or a synth techno-Christian band or something along those lines. And uh, I've actually found a fantastic one. Uh, the name of the band is Iris. Um, and uh, it's a guy out of Austin, I believe. And he's a Christian. And uh, he makes really great music. And if you look at the lyrics, there is definitely a Christian perspective uh, in there. So uh, there you go. There's your synth pop band for your consideration. Thanks. Cheers. All right, Frederick. Yeah, this was a great voicemail. First of all, we appreciate the encouragement. Thanks for listening and for sending in some recommendations for Christian Techno. Apparently, people listen to our request, Tony. I know. It's great. We should start <laughs> We should start asking for some other stuff. <laughs> yes, we should. <laughs> so I actually looked up this, this guy, Iris, and it's, it's pretty good stuff. And actually, Scott Martin also had sent us an email of a remix of I Know by King's Kaleidoscope. That was also pretty killer. So nice. I, there is some like pretty good kind of Christian, Christian like techno electronica stuff out there. So, I mean, we're going to have to, I guess, get our, get our moves on. Yeah. I don't know. Is that I've the, actually, uh, the F bomb edition of King's Kaleidoscope or the non F bomb <laughs> no, edition? No, 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 no. <laughs> that, that was before they lost their mind. Yes. They somehow thought that that was a legitimate thing to put into a quote unquote, worship song that was the the previous album 
yeah, yeah. That, that that got super weird all i can I was think s- of when i hear techno is <laughs> <laughs> that's all i've got uh you make a great house beat that's all i, I gotta I say i try is that a glow stick in your mouth <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've got Here's i've the- got a rave going on in my my little bedroom here Here's the thing. I don't want to put you on the spot, but you're the only one I'm talking to, so I am. Um, I've seen you dance, like, at your wedding, and oh, yeah. uh, you definitely have some moves. Uh, yeah. I mean, a wedding is a whole – you know, I actually I should link this. I wrote a blog post once about why Christians should celebrate weddings, like, why we should really go all out to celebrate weddings. Like, get and, after it. And it's funny because, like, I have a theological reason for everything, but I have a theological reason why I dance at weddings and I don't necessarily dance other places. Is like weddings reflect the final ultimate victory of Christ and, like, the salvation that we've obtained and the inheritance we've obtained. So, like, for sure, I, I go all out at weddings. And, I, I mean, my wedding, I went even more all out than any other wedding I've been to. But, like, dancing at a wedding is a must. I don't care who you are, dance at a wedding. I hope you dance. You know, it sounds like sounds like you're bringing in that covenant theology again. Exactly. <laughs> you don't bring in covenant theology. Covenant theology brings in you <laughs> to the covenant. Uh, that's great. I feel like that just begs the you can take the reform guy out of covenant theology, but you can't take the covenant theology out of the reform guy. Exactly. So before we move like on that. to the next email or to the next voicemail, yeah, I just want to say uh, this guy's name is Frederick Carver. And I've been watching Vikings, and I think that we should start calling him Frederick the Carver, because that sounds like the most epic, uh, like awesome Viking name that I can think of. I agree, Frederick. You got a killer name, man. Yes. So if you don't own a helmet with some horns in it, I think that that might be a legit investment for you. Yeah, absolutely. Although the Vikings, my Vikings, did not do great in football. I mean, that's like the one thing I know about football is that the Vikings always blow it, and they blew it this time too. Oh, that's too bad. But yeah. you know what? Speaking of football reference, uh, let's listen to the next voicemail. <laughs> okay. That's a good good segue. <laughs> Hello, brothers. This is Jimmy. Greetings from Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Go birds. Uh, first off, you're absolutely right. The Crisco cops, the guys who do grease the poles, they do exist, and they do unfortunately encourage people to basically climb the poles provide reverse psychology. Uh, so I have a question for you guys, hoping you might answer. I work as a nurse, and that requires me to work weekends, particularly Sundays. Um, I've been learning more about the Lord's Day lately, and I'm hoping, I know so much of it has to do with coming together with God's people on that day for worship and for prayer and for hearing the word preached. And I don't know pragmatically what it means for me to kind of make up for it, where I understand that Acts of mercy, which nursing, I think, falls under pretty heavily, kind of is an acceptable reason to miss. But what does it look like for me to try and catch up or make up for the loss of the Lord's Day? That happens in my week sometimes. Uh, Any pragmatic advice would be wonderful, and just a better understanding of what the Lord's Day is would be great to hear. And finally, a prayer request. I'm starting grad school, which is going to be cool, but it's also going to be a ton of reading and a ton of work. And on top of that, I'm also going to maintain a, a work schedule while in grad school. So if you could pray for me that I would still be able to read and pray and do the spiritual disciplines that have contributed so much to growth um, that I would not shirk and I would not they would not become dutiful, that they would still be a joy despite a tighter schedule. That would be awesome. So... 
signing off from Philadelphia. This is Jimmy. Bye, brothers. All right. Thank you, Jimmy. Jimmy has been like a loyal listener of ours from like way back in the yeah. beginning, right? I think so, yeah. He's fantastic. So I'm glad to hear that I wasn't just making up that whole thing about the Crisco cops in Philadelphia <laughs> and them greasing up the poles. So I, I feel like we, I want to see video of that, but I, so here's my feeling. So the, the, um, I just lost the team name, the Eagles and the Patriots are going to play in the Super Bowl, right? Is there any chance in this situation that the people of Philadelphia don't just destroy their city, win or lose? I don't know. I, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, it's Pennsylvania, so yeah, it's a crazy place. I'm telling you. All right. So his question, though, is really good. It is. And I think this is something that we should spend some time kind of thinking about with, of course, the caveat that we're not pastors. Right. And this this should be something that you're always discussing, not with a pastor, but your pastor. Right. But at the same time, I think it's legitimate for us to think about, you know, I'll let you start. You can go first. So in terms of understanding, if you have to miss the Lord's Day for like legit reasons in terms of, of your work without getting into that whole thing, let's just presume that that's the case. What can you do to kind of, quote unquote, make up for missing that experience? Yeah. So I I think it's really important that you recognize that you can't make up for missing that experience. So and I don't mean that in like a salvific sense, like God is not going to like condemn you to hell because you are an EMT and you had to be out on the ambulance on Sunday. But there's nothing that you can substitute for in-person fellowship with the saints and the preaching of the word and the administration of the Lord's Supper. So um, what I would say is do everything you can whenever you can to not miss that. Now, that said, some people have jobs that take them away either um, on a regular basis or once in a while. And I think um, the best thing you can do is just sort of keep your tank full. Right. Other times right. that you are not having to miss the Lord's Day worship, make sure that you're attending to the means of grace on those days, because there's nothing worse than um, I'm sure there's probably lots of things worse. But in the context of the question, there's nothing worse than skipping church one week and then really wanting because you feel like you're just empty and then finding out you can't go for some reason the next week. Um so I'd say that's kind of the first thing that I would say is is make sure that you keep your tank full because you're going to need those kinds of reserves when you have to miss for one or several weeks in a row. I totally agree with that. I liked you stole my answer again because what I was going to say is, first of all, Jimmy, I really commend you because it sounds like this dude has a really soft heart to this particular yeah. thing. He's concerned, and I think that's the right attitude. In some ways, to recognize that there is no proxy or analog for the Lord's Day. Yeah. So when you're able to, that that needs to be certainly an absolute priority. And I think the best that we can kind of try to do when we have to miss that means of grace is to keep pace with yep. the life of the church. So if the purpose of being in church is, is many fold, but it's primarily to sit under the authority of biblical teaching with the congregation of the saints, then the first thing I think that uh, he should do is sit down with his pastors, elders, and explain just on like a pragmatic level that why he's not going to be there yep. so that they know and so that they can maintain some sense of accountability. He should yeah. express his heart that his desire is to be there. God has also called him into this particular role for this particular season. So I think that's like a good first step, like you were saying. What else? Like, wh- What are some like pr- pragmatic things that you might have him or recommend for him to do yeah. to kind of 
stay in the life of the church, so to speak. Yeah. So a lot of people will say things like, um, you should find like a good online church that you can listen to their sermons, like pick up Matt Chandler or like Alistair Begg. And that's, that's fine. Like I listen to sermons, but listen to your pastor's sermons. Yes. Amen. So there's, there's a reason why you're, you're in the church you're in. There's a reason why God has led you to the church that you're in. And your pastor is preaching to concerns about your community and the people that you are in fellowship. And if you're a member and you should be a member that you're covenanted with to support and to hold each other accountable. And so the, the things that your pastor, your pastor is choosing to preach on, um, are probably specifically selected for the context of your congregation that you're a part of. So even if you're not listening to the sermon at the same time as everyone else, being able to hear the sermon that your pastor preached with your congregation in mind for this time in your town and all of those contextual things, um, I think can be a real boon to your spiritual life because he's going to be able to speak to things that you're struggling with or that you're addressing. So for example, um, this is, I don't, I don't want to speculate as to why it's not on the national news, but we had a young man in our town who has a a sort of a checkered past and he was going to get pulled over. And instead of getting pulled over, he drove his car into a field and jumped out and ran away from the police. And he got shot to death by the police. Now that is something that's hyper specific to our, our town. And it's not a big town, but there's a lot of unrest and angst going on in our town. Now, our pastor has not preached on that, but he's made comments about it. And that is something that I need to hear about because there are people in my community that are grieving because this man has died. There are people who are hurt. There are people who don't trust the police. There are police officers that don't feel safe because they've received threats. There's all this stuff going on in our community that my pastor has spoken to in various ways. And if I'm not participating in the life of the church by listening to those sermons, then I'm missing out on his pastoral influence in those areas. And that's just one example. I mean, every one of us probably has examples in our life that our pastor, if they're doing their job right, is speaking to specific things in our community that we need to be preached to about. Not to make the pulpit like a venue to like talk about social change or anything like that, but the gospel has something to say to our context. And if we're not listening to our pastor, then the gospel he's preaching is not speaking to our context. And I think that's an important thing. Um, So if your church is not um, recording their sermons, I know a lot of churches are like, we don't need a podcast. We're just a small church. There's a benefit to your church recording those sermons because people invariably have to miss for some reason. It's important that they're able to listen to that. So if they're not recording their sermons and making those available, then I would encourage you to approach your pastor and say, it would really benefit me if I could hear your sermon throughout the week, even though I'm not able to be there on this Sunday or on on any given Sunday. It'd be really beneficial to me to be able to hear what you're preaching because I believe that God's word that you're preaching is for me too, because I'm a member under your care. And if your pastor is like, I don't want to do that, then maybe you need to think about finding a different church because he has care for your soul. And I can't imagine a pastor who's going to be like offended or upset that you are desperate to hear what he's preaching. That just doesn't make sense. Absolutely. So I'd say that's really important. Yeah, that's critical because it's, again, what we're focusing on is this idea that you cannot supplant what's happening at the local church where you should be a member. So while it's fine, if you want to listen to some other preacher, the bottom line is because you know, you can't be there on the Lord's day. We're saying you want to be as involved as you possibly can. Right. And one of the ways you do that is by keeping pace 
with what is being preached from that pulpit, even if you can't be there in person. And I would probably add to that, it would be super helpful to join a small group and to be involved with others of various ages. And again, to kind of bring this up before your elders and even pose the question to them, say, what would you recommend I do? Because I am covenanting, like you said, with this group, I'm in it. So what can I do to make sure that I'm fellowshipping and I'm staying involved in the lifeblood of what's happening in this local church? I think that he's got the right heart on that. And so it's just a matter of kind of fleshing out in this particular situation, what makes the most sense. Yeah. And to sort of step back from Jimmy's specific situation um, to more of a abstract hypothetical kind of a thing. I think there are a lot of people who are in, in jobs that cause them to miss the Lord's day that either first they could do something in their current job to change that. um, Or, they could change jobs to change that. And so the the question has to be asked, what are you willing to sacrifice in order to be present in the congregation and the assembly of the righteous on the Lord's day? Um, Now we don't have to get into it, but I don't think that just missing the Lord's day because I've got a shift to work at Starbucks. And that's just an example. I'm not thinking of anyone specific, but um, I've got a shift to work at such and such a retail store or, whatever. I don't think that's a legitimate reason to miss Lord's Day worship. So I'm a Westminster guy. I'm I'm not as strict of a Sabbatarian as some other people are, but I don't think that just choosing to miss worship on Sunday is an option for Christians. And I don't think that every job is a job that you should justify missing the Lord's or, or working on Sunday at all for, but especially missing the Lord's day worship. So I think you have to ask those hard questions of, is this job that I'm working actually a work of necessity, right? Or is it actually right. a work of, of mercy or, you know, those different categories that the, the Westminster confession talks about? Is it actually fall in those categories? And if it doesn't, then you need to ask yourself the hard question of what do I do? So I had a, a run in and I don't, he might listen to the show. I don't know, but I had a run in with someone online a while, a long time ago, a couple years ago, who was an over the road trucker, right? And he is never in church on Sunday, ever, never in church on Sunday. And that is a sin. Like that's a straight up sin. And my, my response to him was get a different job. Like find a different job. I don't care if you have to work at McDonald's and flip burgers, get a different job that lets you be with the saints. Because he was for several years had not been in the Lord's Day worship. And he was he came into this with like the question was like, I'm feeling really spiritually dry and I'm just looking for some good books to read or some good audio books that will reinvigorate my uh, spiritual life as I do this over the road trucking thing. And then it was like an afterthought that he hadn't been to a Lord's day worship service for like three years. And it's like, well, there's your problem, right? right. It's because you're not attending to the means of grace, the way that God has ordained us and ordered us to. So I, I, like I said, that's not about Jimmy's situation specifically or any particular person's situation specifically. But I think sometimes our first response is to try to fill in the gaps rather than trying to look at, are the gaps even necessary? Right. Yeah, I agree. And I'm thankful for Jimmy throwing out some prayer requests as well. I know you and I have both done graduate degrees, and that's a a challenge, but I also know what kind of wonderful blessing the Lord has brought through that period when I've sought him 
and relied on him completely. That's one of those things that can bring you to the end of yourself when you have yeah. to work full time and then do some studying on top of that. You quickly learn how impoverished you are in almost yeah. every sense of that word. So True story. I'll definitely be holding that up in prayer and I'm sure he's going to get after it and crush it. Yeah, absolutely. So we have time to do one more? We do. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Let's close out on this. This is a great one. So we have one final question and it is an email. And so let me just read you the question and you can go first again, Tony. (laughs) So here's the question. How does it work for you two since you hold to the Reformed tradition, but your respective churches are not confessional? Is there a tension there because of some of the differences in doctrine that you may hold that your churches do not? And go. Yeah, so I actually think that this question is going to be easier for me to answer than it will be for you. Oh, okay. So um, the church that I'm at is not a confessional church in the sense that it um, formally recognizes or requires a particular confession. Um, but I don't know of any significant area of doctrine that our pastor or even the majority of our congregation would disagree with, like the London Baptist Confession of Faith, for example. That's fair. Um, for me, it's it's a bit tricky because I'm Presbyterian by conviction. I hold the Westminster Confession by conviction, and I'm a member of a Baptist church. Um, but what I've learned is the amount of agreement that there is. So, for example, the, the amount of difference between the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 and the Westminster Confession is negligible except in the areas of substantive disagreement, right? Baptism is a disagreement. Church government's a disagreement. But apart from those, like, distinctives that are, are marking off the difference between Baptists and Presbyterians. The rest of it is basically speaking with one voice. There's little things here and there. So for me, it's it's been a matter of recognizing that um, when you join a church, when you become a member of a church, you are in some senses promising to submit to that body and that eldership. And right. you're also promising to advocate and fight for the the peace of that church and the purity of that church. And so for me, it's as simple as recognizing when it's not time to speak, right? We're in Bible study and there's a question about baptism, probably not time for me to contribute to that conversation. I'll let the pastor do it. Now, actually, when those questions come up, my pastor, our, our father is very good at sort of actually letting me explain, sort of. We had a question come up about, I don't understand why some people baptize infants. And dad looked at me. And let me explain why some people baptize infants. Right. So for me, it hasn't really been that much of a conflict. Um, you know, I hold some convictions on like the second commandment that this church disagrees with. So there's times that I have to sort of avert my eyes from what's going on because I, it's a conviction I hold. Um, but I'm I'm not accountable necessarily to like tear down every possible image of Jesus that's in the church or to object to things where there's things that I might find objectionable going on. Um, I find ways to participate in the life of the church that I don't feel violates my convictions. And I'm satisfied with that. I believe God has me where he has me and he's called me here for a purpose. And um, I'm satisfied with that. Right on. That's a good answer. Your turn. This is a great question because I think it just demands a candid kind of personal answer. So straight up, is there tension for me? I would say, sure. But I don't know that that tension is negative, if that makes sense. Yeah. So there's something you said for, at least in the denomination I attend, it's very open in terms of 
the different kind of orthodox theological positions. So this idea of having a kind of healthy tension where we understand things slightly differently does come up from time to time, and not just necessarily, let's say, in a small point in the sermon, but perhaps even in a discussion about, uh, even just among parishioners about any manner of thing, whether that's in a part of a business meeting or part of a Sunday school or part of a, a membership class. But it's those kind of things which I think challenge us to go deeper into the scriptures to understand why we believe what we believe. And I've found that even though there is some of that healthy tension for me, that I'm really widely respected. Like they're willing to listen to my voice. Sometimes yeah. it's really funny to me because I'm kind of like the token reform dude. Like they'll be <laughs> like, we need, a, we need a reformed answer on this. Whereas Jesse, yeah. so, you know, I kind of respect the fact that they have a right for me to listen to their voice. But I would be kind of a traditional London Baptist confession guy, although there's a lot, of course, in the Westminster that I would also agree with. And for that reason, I think the confessional stuff is super helpful, if only because it takes away the ambiguity of what we believe so that we don't just say Jesus is our creed. Okay, fine. That's great. But what do we believe when we say that? So there is always that tension there. But I I find that it's, it's kind of a healthy way to dialogue in a way that often proves that there can be unity in the body yeah. in the, with the bond of peace. And I think, you know, if you can't expect that to happen in any kind of solid Christian church, where can you expect that to happen? Yeah. So it definitely exists, but kind of like you, I'd say maybe it exists more for me than for you. I don't know if that's fair. Yeah. But it's um, something that, like you said, it's it's also very humbling to sit in a place under teaching where sometimes you say, well, that's not exactly how I understand it. But to realize that the Lord himself has placed you under that teaching for such a time as this. Right. And to ponder what that means and to really internalize the work that he's doing by exposing you to kind of these different theological perspectives. That's yeah. also really important. Maybe everybody should go to a church for a period of time where <laughs> it's a little bit different from their non-essential convictions, because I think that would all be a growing experience for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to, to just sort of add to that and maybe kind of cap it off is I think that if you're in a congregation that has um, theological differences, whether they're significant differences or minor differences, you know, it really requires a good relationship with your pastor too. Yes. Because, um, you know, I've been in churches where, I had major disagreements with some of the sort of fundamental theological issues in the church. And I didn't, I didn't have an outlet or a venue to bring those things up uh, because I didn't have a great relationship with the pastor. I didn't have a, I didn't have access to him. And um, that's really, really frustrating. But I've also been in churches and I, I would say this, the church I'm at now is one of those where I have, I have, moderate disagreements on some things. And there's a few things, you know, like baptism that are significant disagreements, but I have total freedom. And I, I think not just because he's my father-in-law, I, th- I think that he's the kind of pastor that anybody could set up an appointment with him and talk through these things. For but sure. I have total access to him almost anytime I need it to say like, Hey, I'm really struggling with the fact that you said this in a sermon and it's really getting under my skin because I believe this and it's very different. And He's not going to just roll over and say, oh, yeah, yeah, well, I won't preach that anymore. But what he's going to do is he's going to say, well, let me consider your view. Why don't you consider my view? Let's let's right. go to the scriptures together. Let's talk about it. And at the end of the day, if if we can't come to an agreement, then we we can't come to an agreement. But we're still we're still brothers in Christ. 
we're still family and we still love each other and you're still welcome at this church. Um, there are things that if I went to him and said, you know, I'm just really not feeling this Trinity thing. I'm really struggling with this Trinity thing. He would not say to me, we can come to an agreement to disagree and you can stay at this church. Right. He would say, I love you, son, but if you're not going to, if you're not going to affirm the Trinity, then you got to go. Peace out. Right. And that, that I, I couldn't imagine how difficult that would be for both of us, but that's the kind of relationship you need to have with your pastor. And I get the sense that you have a similar kind of relationship with people at your church and leadership For sure, that you can go to him and say like this crisis theology thing. I'm not sure. Like I struggle with this. Right. <laughs> We've had I mean, that that's just, we, we talked about that on the episode with Ben, like that's right. a real tension and difficulty that sometimes you guys have to face. But it also strikes me that like a lot of people who are, are, confessional or hold strong reformed doctrinal stances and are saying like, well, I'm in a church that's not confessional. The the reason they struggle is because the church has too broad of a doctrinal base. And in reality, like that's not really much of a problem because y- if you have the freedom to hold the views you hold and to freely disagree with and talk with other people about it, then by all means have at it. Like that's a great situation right. to be in. If you, if you have the capacity to do it respectfully and graciously, then be as um, proselytetic, proselytetic. I think I made up a word, but proselytize <laughs> people to your heart's desire. Like if that's part of the context of the church, like you go, you go preach about Tulip to all your small groups. Right. That's fine. Like I've Let been in rip. places where the, the last church that Ashley and I were at, um, like when we got there, we realized there was a huge amount of dispensationalists and we went to the leadership and their answer was like, why don't you teach a class on covenant theology and convince a bunch of people to change their minds? And we did that. It was great. I love that. So like it, it all depends on the church you're in and your personality. We've, you know, we've said like churches are like families. Like sometimes you have to learn what your place is in a given church and unlike families and it shouldn't be done lightly, but unlike families, sometimes you realize like you don't have a place and it's time to go and that's okay too. Sure. Yeah. Isn't it almost better to have some kind of rich, open, gracious disagreement than to have just like shallow agreement? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know what I mean? So to just say, well, I'm going along. I went to this church because it's it's confessional and I just know that I should be confessional and I, I by default agree with everything without really right. examining it. I, I don't know that that many people do that, but it's okay. It's really yeah. okay. Yep. And I think that's, uh, it can be a healthy, healthy thing. So Keep on, plus, like it's not like you or I are undercover reform people. Like we can't be completely reformed because we don't go to confessional churches. Because right. if we say that, then what we're basically saying is that God Himself, as He's laid the convictions on our heart, really couldn't orchestrate His plan to its full completion. Because depending on where you live geographically, you can't find a confessional church within two hours, and so therefore, right. yeah, that's really too bad. He really couldn't work out what He had ideally planned for you. So it's like saying you can't be reformed if you don't go right. to a professional church. So yeah. just keep at it. Keep loving God. Keep striving after his word. Keep living in holiness and keep having good conversations with your pastors and your elders. Yeah. yeah and, and at the end of the day, what confessional people believe it means to be confessional is to believe what the Bible says. Exactly. <laughs> right. So if you're at a church that you don't believe teaches what the Bible says, then that is probably an issue. And you, like I said, you need to come to terms with what what areas can you stomach disagreement and what areas can't you and can you live in that situation? You right. and I have both discovered and decided, I think decided is probably a better word than discovered, but we have both found it to be the case that the context we're in, we can stomach the disagreement. 
and that's fine. That's not to say someone else who can't stomach a disagreement with their church on baptism or on particulars of sanctification and just like that's that's fine too if you can't stomach that disagreement. Everybody's different. Everybody has a different tolerance. Um, and I just think you have to just learn where God has called you and what he's calling you to. And that just takes wisdom and and diligence and studying the scripture and prayer and all of those other kinds of things that, you know, as Christians, we should just be doing anyways. And that's a two-way street because we should be asking, can our churches stomach us? Yes. Like, are, are we obnoxious? Yeah. And are we putting up such a stink that they're like, what are you doing to us? Like we, yeah. we shouldn't be obstinate toward our pastors and so that's a whole nother thing. But yeah. I like your point because it's maybe instructive to remember that there's a difference between a non-confessional church and an anti-confessional church, which right. would be one that w- doesn't preach the scriptures at all. And yeah, you want to get the heck out of that situation. Exactly. Yeah. But you got to be careful about this confessional piece and how important it is to you that it, it has that specific label. So yeah. a little tension that's healthy, I think, is may actually be a good thing and a particular grace from God himself. Yeah. So we should do this again sometime, Tony. How about like we start a tradition where the last podcast every month, we just bust out a little voicemail and some questions. Exactly. I think that's a great idea, Jesse. I'm so glad I thought about that. So that means two things. One, I loved hearing other people's voices as a part of this conversation, and I hope people will keep that coming. So send us a voicemail send us an an email. And if, because this is particularly a show about different questions from people, which I think I'm hoping are representative of what people are thinking and listening. And if if what we've said has been helpful to anybody at all, share this episode with somebody else whom you love. Give the gift of the brotherhood to somebody that you love. That was like the corniest call to action ever. (laughs) And I love it so much. Well, speaking of calls to action, we got one more, right? We do. So we have toyed around with the idea of of different ways to ask for support. And some shows do like these elaborate fundraisers. I'm looking at you, Les and Tanner. Um, Some (laughs) shows have like secret hidden access features that you can get access to if you donate. And I'm looking at you, Matt Butts. And all of that is, I'm poking fun at people that I love. All of that is We fine. just put everybody on blast. But Jesse and I have decided that we think that our show is good enough that people will want to support it. And that's all we want. If, if you think the show is good enough to support, then we want to give you a way to support it. So we do, we do have some... At this point, minor costs um, because God has blessed us with um, technology and ways that we can do this on the cheap. Um, But a laptop could die at any moment or our podcast host could change their prices or whatever. So we do want to start to build up a little bit of funds for those kinds of situations. And we do want to make some upgrades that we were doing some things that will require a little bit of recurring costs. So um, we we set up a PayPal account. Um, If you want to support us, um, the email, we're not ready to start taking support yet. We still have some things to get in mind. But if you want to support us um, because you think the show is worth supporting and you want us to continue to make shows, we want to give you a way to do that. Um, if you don't want to support us, the show is free. We're not going to start charging for it. Um, but we, we do think that, um, you know, we've, we've got enough feedback, uh, that the show is really edifying people that we want to find ways to kind of expand that, to edify more people and to, to grow the brotherhood further. Right. So our policy is freely 
you have received freely you shall give and we really mean that so what yeah. this conversation is not is like an npr pledge driver we have like tote bags hanging out yeah the whole reason we're bringing it up is because i always thought when i listen to podcasts like it's so lame that they at some point in their trajectory in their seasoning they ask for money and then we start doing a podcast and i was like oh my gosh there are actually expenses yeah. like we got hosting fees and some other stuff and so we're just kind of opening it up like we've wanted to open it up to other people's voices. Seek, seek God's mind in this. If there's been anything that's helpful, we would be honored and honestly very humbled uh, to receive some support. But of course, your first responsibility and priority is to your church. Yeah. And we want to encourage you to give in that way. And if there's any other generosity that the Lord is laying upon you in our direction, of course, we would appreciate that. And that would go toward just keeping up all, keeping the lights on, basically. Yeah. The lights on of the podcast. Yep, absolutely. Because as much as we want to think that I, I'm a technological whiz, sometimes can make stuff work. If my microphone breaks, there's not going to be a podcast for a while. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, um, so that there we've, like I said, we've been very blessed and we've been very uh, lucky, but other people that have podcasts have told me that there should be a backup plan. And, and that probably requires a little bit of a rainy day fund. So, um, and my bank account can't be the rainy day fund. So that's all we're going to say about it. We'll probably right. bring a reminder up once in a while on the show that there's a way to give and we'll put up a link on the show. Um, there's also other ways to support the show. We have an Amazon affiliate link that if you want to just use our affiliate link to make your purchases, there's a little kind of residual income that comes in that way. Um, so we're going to try to find ways to let you support us. But um, like we're doing you a huge favor by letting you support us. I just realized how that came out. Um, but yeah, so we're not going to belabor the point. I, I'm spinning out of control, Jesse. I don't know how to, I don't know how to get off of this train. Oh, uh, all right. Money talk over. All right. So okay. to close us out, Tony, just say something interesting to kind of cap off this episode oh uh that's like the <laughs> most pressure i've ever been under i know that's why i was hoping to get that word in first before you said to me nice hey, say something to close us out so here's what i'll say that the remonstrant we, we skipped over affirmations and denials today yes. because i forgot what my affirmation was but i just remembered so my affirmation was what I call blessed inconsistency. I think that might actually be a term that James White uh, coined. But the Remonstrance podcast, which is our, all Arminianism all the time, their theme song is written by an Arminian guy. And the closing the closing line that they end on is, um, no matter how far, no matter how steep, your hand will hold me there. And it's addressed to God. And every time they say it, I silently and sometimes out loud say unless i choose to let go <laughs> so if you listen to the remonstrance then please send them this episode because i would love to start a professional podcasting relationship with them to have some back and forth but i just think that's funny and it just goes to show that um this doesn't tie into anything we've said tonight but it goes to show that like we're not consistent in our theology there's always areas we're not consistent for sure and sometimes that's a really good thing I agree. Oh, I didn't know that was going to be it. That was it. That's my interesting thing. I agree. This goes back to that whole thing we talked about whereby you should read and listen to really quality stuff that you disagree with. And their stuff is is really well done, actually. So I, yeah. I totally agree. This is This is brothers and sisters getting in a space where they can have real, honest dialogue about real convictions and not come to fisticuffs. I think that's yeah. a wonderful thing about the body of Christ. And we should lift that up more. Yeah. Save the fisticuffs for the actual heretics. <laughs>
Why haven't we made a shirt that says I that don't know. Yet? It could be because never mind. Maybe we should do a fundraiser. All I'm right, sure there's us- all sorts of reasons why we haven't made any shirts yet. <laughs> well, that's true because we don't Cricket. do fundraisers. Cricket. Cricket. <laughs> all right, Tony, take us home. <laughs> all right, Jesse. This has been great. Until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh, what if I'm fine?